this week on a lively experiment. The supply of vaccine in Rhode Island is now meeting the demand. We'll have some thoughts on why. And is this the year changes to the policeman's bill of rights will make it through the General Assembly? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, former state representative Nick Gorham, Bill Lynch, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party, and Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. There was a time not that long ago where signing up for a COVID vaccination appointment was like trying to get Rolling Stones concert tickets. Very limited supply, leading to a lot of frustration. Well, that script has flipped just within the last couple of weeks as at various vaccination sites, hundreds of appointments are going unfilled and the state now is trying to figure out what to do with that. Bill, let me let me talk to you about this. I don't know whether this is vaccine hesitancy or maybe just a little laziness on some younger people's part, but the state is going to have to address this. Governor McKee said, I want to get up to 70% for herd immunity. We're only in the mid-50s right now. Yeah, you know, I was going to... Uh do this at the end of the show uh, as a public service announcement, but I think a lot of it is is we've got to just encourage people to get vaccinated. And I think the governor and our new lieutenant governor are doing a great job right out of the box to let people know that. But I got my second shot a few weeks ago. Uh, my mom, who's going to turn 90 in a couple of weeks, got her second shot. Uh, no adverse effects. Um, and, and I think we just need to, generally speaking, encourage people to do the right thing for everybody. It's not just, as you know, a personal decision, but it's also something that you know affects clearly people around you, family, friends, neighbors. Um, and I think that the governor and lieutenant governor have done a good job in a very short amount of time in sort of taking the lead and trying to encourage people and let people know that this is something that you know we've really got to buckle down and get done. Uh, Bill, that horn coming out of the back of your head, that has nothing to do with the the, uh, the vaccination, right? That's just yeah, so normally? If, no, but if you if you see me change my designation to Republican, you'll know that there was some serious mental adverse effects from the shot. <laughs> hey, welcome to the party. <laughs> hey, Nick, so what, what do you think about this? Uh, as I said earlier, I think this is a story of the young and not so restless. I think the younger people in the state just feel like they're made of iron and uh, they don't feel as strongly as we adults that they need the shot, that they can survive without it. And I think you're right. It's going to be a challenge to get to the 70% and they need to really start pushing it. Like, um, like Bill Lynch said, Um, it's, I think it's really important to get to that threshold, but that's, that's my explanation. Yeah, there's and there's that ripple effect, Lisa, because we're looking to get the businesses. And uh, Governor McKee earlier this week kind of hinted, well, uh, I think it may be coming sooner than later. But really, if they hit that ceiling and they can't get up to 70, then what do you do? Because they say we want to follow the science and the data. Well, you know, I think you need to recognize that even with the flu vaccine, there are people that are just don't feel that risk is worth the reward of it. And then when you have stories of having major headlines of the Johnson & Johnson um, vaccine causing blood clots, 
um, people, I think, start to think, oh, is this really worth it? So I think in everyone's personal case, they're trying to figure out, and especially this vaccine hasn't been fully federally approved. So I can understand why there are people who normally would not want a vaccine, would hesitate even more. But the good news in Rhode Island is I think the vast majority of people 60 and older, older have been vaccinated. So the people more vulnerable are getting the vaccine. And what do you think, Lisa, about so then it leads to the whole business openings? And it's funny, Governor McKee, once you become governor, it's a lot different, isn't it? When he was lieutenant governor, he was a little bit critical. Now he's got and I'm not saying that he's that he's totally morphed, but he has been, I think, a little bit more careful than some people expected him in terms of loosening the restrictions up a little bit and all of that. Yeah, but again, you got to look at our surrounding states and states throughout the country. So they've been loosening up the restrictions even sooner than we have in Rhode Island. But it's always been from the beginning a balance, starting from when the vaccine became uh, available in December, a balance of public health versus the economy. And for a long period of time, the weight was more toward public health, really kind of clamping down and having stronger restrictions. But as more people get the vaccine, the more we reach that herd immunity, we will be able to open up the economy and open up just our daily lives. Yeah, Bill, I think some of the frustration has been a lot of people, uh, is the incentive to get the vaccine, then, okay, maybe you won't have to wear the mask in the long run. I I see a lot of, and I see a lot of being careful, rightly so, because these are public officials, but I'm hearing the governor say, even with all of this, we may have the kids have to wear masks going back to school in the fall. And at this snapshot in April, I wonder then what's the incentive for people if they're like, well, it's just going to remain the way it's been. Why should I go out and get the vaccine if there's not a reward? I I think uh, two things. I think one is that what we've seen is for anybody who thought uh, that Dan McKee was not ready to hit the ground running uh, when he took office have learned very quickly that uh, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, he's done a great job in a very short period of time. He clearly was ready for the job on day one. And I think now that we have Sabina Matos joining him, um, we've already seen, you know, that they make a great team. And this will be certainly continue to be a priority. He and and the lieutenant governor have made it a priority. I think that they will continue to do that. And I think gradually, I, I, I hate to say it, but I agree with Nick on this particular issue and probably only this particular issue. Um, but I think that, that we'll benefit from this ongoing educational push to encourage people and explain and and constantly remind people that this is a very important issue, particularly if we want to get back to the point where maybe there's going to be a point in time where we don't have to wear a mask all the time, um, that as Lisa says, things will begin to open up. As we said before the program, I would love to be going back to court every day uh, and get back into sort of a normal routine and in order for those things to happen, we need people to realize that we've got to get shots in arms. And, and I think that that uh, Governor McKee and Lieutenant Governor Mattos are doing a, a great job leading that charge. But I think what they're saying is correct. It needs a lot of buy-in from community leaders, athletes, um, particularly in, in to Nick's point, people that younger people tend to look up to, to follow uh, on social media, TikTok. And I think that that's going to hopefully, in my opinion, hopefully that's going to gradually sort of grow into a consensus that more people of different age groups across the board need to get the vaccine. And it's available and readily available. You know, one last thing, Jim. Yeah, go ahead. I really think that they should get the Johnson uh, 
Johnson and Johnson vaccine back online as soon as they can. I think that really disrupted things. A lot of people just want the one and done. And when they shut that down, everybody now knew, well, we've got to go get two shots. And I think with young people, that's a particular problem because it's hard enough to get them to do one. I wish they would, uh, you know, get it right back online so that we can keep that pace going. We're also going to mark this day in history that Bill Lynch actually agreed with you, Nick. So we'll have that on tape somewhere for down the line. <laughs> maybe that could be another adverse effect of the shot that I got. <laughs> you may be delirious. Who knows? Well, Bill, if we if you, if we get you agreeing with Joe Trillo, that will be a whole other moment. We'll have to do a study just on you. Hey, Lisa, every, let's every talk. Every time I'm going to come on the program with Joe Trillo, I come down with something. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's uh, psychosomatic. Hey, Lisa, let's talk about Dan McKee and Sabino Ma- Sabina Matos. I remember the last time we had you on, he was just getting sworn in. So now we've had six, seven, eight weeks. It's funny, he comes to the podium at the Vets. We're taping this on Thursday morning, so he'll come out this afternoon and go, day 42. He wants to remind everybody, you know, I haven't been here 100 years. Um Initial impressions on how he's doing, and then again, this whole dynamic that he never had with Governor Raimondo, with now Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos. No, I think before the election um, last year, um, most people, I think, would have to pause to say, who's our Lieutenant Governor? Of all the general officers, I think he had the lowest profile. But once the election happened and then the rumors started swirling around that Governor Raimondo was going to be tapped, there was more of a spotlight put on, on Governor, uh, Lieutenant Governor McKee at the time. Uh, I think people in Rhode Island, especially because as he became governor, that Governor Raimondo was so out of view uh, for a number of weeks, not as public as he had been so much before. I think he had kind of a sympathy factor. People felt sorry that he was pushed away and not been brought in. And then now he's been thrust into the spotlight here. So I've been watching him just like Bill, and I think he's been doing a very good job. I think the one difference that he's had to learn is the difference between a lieutenant governor and governor is the spotlight is fully on you as governor. Everywhere you go, the media is following you. Every single word that you're saying is being magnified. So I think he's had to learn that. And then as far as his choice for um, lieutenant governor, he's actually walking the walk, talking the talk. He said that he would bring his lieutenant governor to be a full partner. And seeing her at the press conference this week and going forward, he's doing exactly what he said. So, you know, I congratulate him for doing that. Nick, what's your scorecard on the uh, the governor and his new lieutenant governor? Well, um, I I think... Governor McKee is, um, I think a lot of people like him uh, more than uh, Gina Raimondo because he gets right to the point. He seems to be a little more forthright. And they, um, I, there's a lot to like about Governor McKee if you're a Republican because a lot of his uh, positions are similar to Republican positions. And I will say this, and I, I, I'm sure uh, Bill is going to, well, he already said this, I think he made a brilliant move in choosing um, Sabina Matos to be his running mate, so to speak, although they're not really running mates. Um, That's the way it came across. She's a very good pick because she covers that kind of progressive wing that I think is very ambitious in Rhode Island and is going to be very determinative of the outcome of the primary. She knows politics. Her father was a mayor of Paraiso, I hope I've said that right. In the Dominican Republic, she grew up in politics. 
and she's uh, run the city of Providence City Council. So that covers Providence really well. It was a brilliant move by Governor McKee because now what does Seth Magaziner do uh, and the others who were all ready to run the, the, the uh, Mayor Eloisa and our Secretary of State, what are they gonna do? It's really a difficult quandary that they're in and I can't wait to see how it plays out. Bill, you ought to be glad you're not chairman of the Democratic Party right now. Because, I mean, what what do you do? Seth Magaziner, Nelly, Corbea, uh, Jorge Alorza, and who knows who's going to come out of the woodwork. Uh, what do you do if you are the chairman in terms of juggling that? Well, you used to ask me that when I was the chairman and we had a primary. And I used to say to you that I love primaries because... It gets our candidates out early. It gets them on message. It gets them ready for the general election. But, you know, the truth of the matter is that it also can be very divisive. And I've said to you on this program before that we've elected Republican governors in the past, largely because of what took place during a Democratic primary. So, uh, look, I will say this, that I have known Dan McKee. I hate to even tell you how long um, I used to play basketball against him when we were in high school. And he has been underestimated, I think, politically for a long time. And people should underestimate Governor McKee at their own peril. He is, and I think one of the things we're seeing with him is that he's not only ready, but he's a very calming, comforting sort of uh, elected official and, and candidate. And I think in this environment, particularly with the pandemic that we're dealing with, People have really taken that to heart and have really, you know, begun to really appreciate what uh, Governor McKee brings to the table in that fashion. And, you know, same thing with regard to Lieutenant Governor. You know, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with Sabina for a long time on a lot of different issues, both personal, uh, political and professional. And um, let me tell you something. She people make a big mistake if they think she was selected simply because she's a woman of color, because she is extremely talented. She is pro progressive and aggressive. She's smart. Uh, she's determined. And I think that they're going to be a great team. They, they have shown that in a very, very short period of time. And I think they're going to be a great team going forward. So. You know, I, I think politically, we just have to see how it shakes out, right? I mean, so much of politics is timing. Um, there are a lot of people who think that Governor McKee and, and Lieutenant Governor Matos have sort of arrived at a time that will be very uh, positive for them in terms of the pandemic, the vaccine, uh, businesses hope, hopefully beginning to open back up, um, stimulus money, you know, due from Washington. So, you know, we'll see. I think that, that they have to do the job. That's what people are going to watch, right? It's one thing to say that, you know, what you're going to do when you get there, but now they've got a chance, and I think that they're going to grab it and run to really do a good job on these issues and get Rhode Island back open and moving in the right direction. And politically, what that means, um, I agree with Nick. We'll just have to, you know, wait and, and see. You know, as you know, Jim and Lisa, Sometimes things happen in politics out of the clear blue and you just don't have any anticipation or reason to think that that's going to happen and, and you have to make the best of it. So that, that'll play out, I guess, over the next several months. I don't know if you've noticed, Bill, he's uh, used a little bit of a basketball analogy. He said, don't miss your shot in terms of getting to the thing. We'll talk later whether he was I a always, post player. I always or tell Governor McKee that I appreciate him because if it wasn't for him, Guarding me on defense, I would have never scored a thousand points. 
Was he a post player or could he chuck it up from the outside? That's the question. Was he good down low? The older he got, the more he liked to shoot from outside. That's what I tell him. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, Lisa, I wonder whether, you know, an open seat always, always invites a lot of competition on each side. I wonder if this makes it more difficult for a potential Republican uh, candidate. A lot of that will depend on how Dan McKee does over the next year and a half. But does that change the dynamic? Well, you know, this was a beautiful gift to Governor McKee by becoming governor. Um, he's now the incumbent. By becoming governor, he was um, low on the fundraising side, and now the money's flowing in for him. Plus, he has the anticipation of almost $1.78 billion coming to the state from the federal government that he's going to be able to really infuse in different ways into the economy. So there are a lot of things in his favor going forward. But as Bill said, it's a long time between April 2021 to November next year, and things can happen. So, so far, he's been walking the line. He hasn't done anything controversial. He hasn't done any hard decisions right now to have opposition. But I don't know if that can happen between now and next November. So how is he going to be able to take a punch? So as far as the Republicans are concerned, uh, we would have to bring up somebody very strong, just waiting in the wings, hoping that the Democrats pick each other apart on the primary side <laughs> and then have that Republican come in in November. That's my scenario. <laughs> oh, true. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit as uh, we're the, t- the time always goes way too quickly. Um, Derek Chauvin's conviction uh, resonated across the country. A lot of people will be looking here. We talked last week about how policing has been on a lot of people's minds. Uh, of course, in every community across the country, given the events of the last year. Uh, the one thing in Rhode Island that's being talked about now is something that seems to be a perennial issue, the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights, and whether it'll be modified. Look, they, they have been able to beat back attempts for years and years, going back to the mid-70s when this was passed. Nick, let me begin with you. Any thoughts about what's going on, first in Minneapolis, but also here in Rhode Island, and whether this is the year with the momentum, or maybe we don't see change? Well, ironically, the Police Officers' Bill of Rights, the genesis of that legislation, it was enacted in 1974 as a result of um, so many complaints against uh, police officers that they could no longer do their job. And so the General Assembly created a panel that was comprised predominantly by police officers to judge the conduct of police officers. In short, it was the peers, the, a police officer's peers were responsible for judging whether he, had, he or she had done the job correctly. So here we are full circle. Um, yeah, this is probably the best year to attack it. Um, you know, one other thing about the early 70s is that um, the Interlocal Risk Management Trust, which we have that ensures all the cities and towns, one of the reasons that that was created was because of the assault on police officers in the late 60s and early 70s by lawsuits and things of that nature, you couldn't buy insurance, couldn't insure towns. Interlocal was created around the same time to address that problem. So if if they change the panel, I'm not saying that Uh, towns won't be able to find insurance. We have interlocal and so forth. But what I'm saying is there was some wisdom in creating that panel. And I think there's going to be a real battle in the General Assembly. We're going to see the true colors of a lot of 
Democrats and Republicans. It's not really a party issue. It's an issue about how you feel about the police and how best to manage the way they do their job. Um, if I were in the General Assembly, uh, this would be a tough vote. This is a really tough vote, and I'll bet it comes to the floor this year. I think they have the votes to get it to the floor. Lisa? No, I, what I've been wondering is this. There is such a movement right now, and it started last year, to have some police reforms. What I would like to see is the police associations, the police unions come forward with their own proposals instead of sitting back and letting the legislature figure out what they want to do and then just oppose it. Why can't they you know, read the writing on the wall that there needs to be some change here? If right now you can only suspend a police officer in Rhode Island for two days without pay, and there's a bill pending in the, um, the General Assembly for 30 days, can't there be some sort of level of compromise? Or what can the police associations bring forward to say, let's work together on this. We're recognizing there is an issue here and let's work together. Yeah, Billy. Well, I, I think this year there is a new momentum to this issue. It, it has been discussed over the past several years, but uh, you know, I know Representative Anastasia Williams has a bill in um, with the legislature and it has begun to engender, I think, this significant discussion. And I think, I think that there is momentum um, because of what's happened, not just in Minnesota, unfortunately, but in other areas of the country and including here in Rhode Island. Um, so I, I am hopeful, uh, optimistically hopeful, uh, that maybe in line with what Lisa's saying, that there will be some uh, negotiations and compromises, which is part of the legislative process. Uh, but I think that we all, we should recognize if we don't, that there need to be some changes um, in how we are policing and particularly how that affects our minority community, including right here at home in Rhode Island. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that there will be some changes that will be made. You know, we all, I think, would agree the majority of our police officers are great, but there are bad police officers. There are bad lawyers. There are bad doctors. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that it's become evident that that maybe we haven't done as good a job as a, a community in making sure that bad police officers are treated differently than the good ones. And I think that people are now sort of reluctantly recognizing that, I hope, and that there's going to be significant changes as a result of that. You know, what's right. not helpful is that we've had um, instances in Rhode Island where a police officer is put on leave, paid leave, but it takes months and even years for it to be resolved. So people are aware that people, um, police officers are being paid not to work while this whole process takes forever. And I don't think that has been helping build the trust between the community and police that we need to see. Yeah, I think part of it is sometimes that process, it gets put off, it gets put off. And what's the police officer care if, if that paycheck's still coming in? All right, um, let's, let's do outrages and or kudos. Uh, and then we may have a couple of other things. Nick, let me begin with you. Do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? I have one of each. Um, the Well, let's, did you clear that with the producer beforehand? Come on, let's not get greedy here. As quick as I can, kudos All to right. the uh, Honorable Peter Cahill, who was the judge presiding over the Chauvin trial, for calling out politicians who come and interfere uh, with, you know, and raise all this, uh, what, what Maxine Waters did, Representative Maxine Waters of California flew in to um, Minnesota and just fomented the, uh, the outrage uh, and called upon people, if I uh, have it right, uh, to confront and uh, 
insinuating people could riot again if if the verdict wasn't right. Well, that was while the jury was deliberating and, and Judge Cahill called out all politicians to stay out of it. And he also said that, uh, he said explicitly, perhaps uh, Representative Waters had handed a real appellate issue to the defendant who ended up being convicted. So he's going to appeal. This is going to be an issue, I guarantee you, that's going to be brought up <clears throat> on appeal. My outrage is that when Congress wanted to, the Republicans in Congress thought that Maxine Waters should have been censured for what she did. And they couldn't have been so wrong if the judge had implored politicians not to come and do exactly what she did. And both, uh, if I'm not mistaken, both of our congressmen, uh, Cicilline, who should know something about the sanctity of uh, juries deliberating, and uh, Congressman Langevin voted against censuring Maxine Waters. That was a disappointment. It was a clear opportunity to send the right message, and they chose not to. Bill, what do you have this week? <laughs> I just changed my outrage from what it was going to be to Nick Gorham and the Republican Party because can you imagine? I was ready to fall out of my chair that they're criticizing Maxine Waters, who, by the way, should not have said what she said. I agree with that. But for the, and I'm only saying it tongue in cheek with respect to Nick, but nationally, particularly with some of these Republican elected leaders, so to speak, in Congress who are going, bending over backwards to criticize Maxine Waters, and yet they've bitten their tongues and said nothing about these white nationalists that stormed Congress looking to hang Mike Pence, kill Nancy Pelosi. They want to just push that, shove that under the rug like it never happened. It was okay. They weren't really dangerous because they were white, and they, most of them didn't have guns. And they want to and they want to draw in court of Maxine Waters for one sentence in a speech that they think was inappropriate. It's ridiculous. And it's why I think we see such a distrust uh, developing and such barriers in Washington to getting anything done in the Congress because people are fed up. I mean, it's, how do you reconcile those two things? It's okay for Donald Trump to cause a riot and have people try to take over the, the United States Congress, but we should drum Maxine Waters out of Congress for saying something inappropriate at, about the Minnesota trial. It's, it is merely a censure. Merely a censure. <laughs> and maybe, <laughs> maybe they're both wrong, Bill. That's how you reconcile it. Maybe I they're agree. both a little wrong. I, I, I don't agree with what Maxine Waters said. I agree with you. But where is the outrage from Republicans in Washington about Donald Trump and, and, and his henchmen? Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable. Yes, yeah, censure not drawn and quartered. All right, I don't want to short. Uh, we'll continue this afterwards. Lisa, you've got about a minute left. You can blame the boys if uh, you feel like you were shorted. Well, uh, I don't have an outrage. I have more of a pet peeve. And this kind of speaks to what we were talking earlier about vaccine hesitancy. Um, put me in the category of I hate needles. And since the uh, COVID vaccine became available in December, watching the local and national news, it's been story and story after the vaccine. But the visual that each television station chooses to show over and over mm. are the needle going into people's arms. And usually it's the piercing of the skin. So most times I'm doing this because I can't stand it. And then last night in 30 seconds, I saw it 12 times. So if, he, if the media wants to help people go get the vaccine, I just suggest that they come up with a different visual. 
Free yeah, you know that's after your shot. Free popsicle, just like the. <laughs> well, you know what they used to say that when I was at Channel Six. Don't ever show a needle going in. They would do it occasionally for a vaccine because of people like you. I mean, and I say that in a complimentary way. People like you, Lisa. Folks, that is uh, that is all the time we have. Lisa and Nick and Bill, it's always a quick 30 minutes with you guys. Folks, come back here next week. If you don't catch us on Friday or Sunday, you can always catch us online at ripbs.org, on Twitter, on Facebook. We're everywhere. And your favorite podcast, wherever you get it, we are there too. Have a great week and go back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face rhode islanders i'm john hazen white jr and i'm proud to support this great program in rhode island pbs